Luke chapter 15. Now we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to give you sort of an introduction into the Bible study tonight. So let's pray, and we'll dive in. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for this day. God, I thank you for this church and how much they have invested in me and God, how much they have trained me and allowed me to be used. And God sent me out to where I can be used um, in another area. And Lord, I'm so thankful for that. Lord, I pray that you would bless us tonight, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would use me as we begin to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. If you're at Luke chapter 15, verse number one, say amen. amen. The Bible says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them. So I want to share with you a thought tonight titled, This Parable. Now we're going to be looking at a part of the parable and that part of the parable is the story of the prodigal son. Most all of us have probably heard dozens of messages preached on the prodigal son, but I want to maybe enlighten you this evening that this is one parable, all three stories in one. You see, the Bible says that the Pharisees and the scribes and the publicans and the sinners were all gathered around Jesus to hear what it was that he had to say. Really, the sinners were there to hear what it was Jesus had to say, but the Pharisees were there to critique him and try to catch him in some sort of foul up to where they would have reason to get rid of him. And so they're gathered around, and the Bible says that Jesus spoke to them this parable and he begins with the story of the lost sheep. You've heard the story of the lost sheep where he tells the story of the shepherd who had many sheep and then one of them wandered away. And then he went and he found his sheep. He put it on his shoulders. He brought it back home. And then when he got home, he let all of his buddies know, hey, everyone, I found my sheep. And what did they do? They all celebrated together and then immediately goes into the next story. Now there is, if you're looking in your Bible, you'll notice that all of it's red. There is no, there's no space. There's no question asked from one of the Pharisees or one of the publicans. There is no space in between. There's no subject change. This is one parable. So the first part of the parable is all about this lost sheep. The second part of the parable, he tells the story of the lost silver. And this is of the young lady who loses a piece of silver, which most people believe was a wedding dowry. So this would be the equivalent of a woman who is engaged losing her engagement ring. And so she frantically sweeps all through her house looking for this piece of silver. And then whenever she finds it, what does she do? She calls and she tells all of her friends, hey, I found my silver. And they all did what? They celebrated with her straight in to the story of the prodigal son from there. And so we're going to begin reading in verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. 
Now, it's important to understand that this younger brother, when he comes to the father and he says, give me the portions of goods that falls to me, that he's asking for his inheritance. Does anyone know when you're supposed to receive your inheritance? When your parents die. So as this father is standing here listening to his son's plea and to his request, the son comes forward and he says, father, give me the portions of good. Give me mine inheritance. You, the father is hearing, I just assume you be dead. He's saying, I, I would be just fine without you. But the father, being a good father, gives him the portion of good. The Bible says he divided unto them. So in some way, some form, he gives the younger brother his portions of good whether it was he had traded it in for gold or silver or some form of cash currency at that time or however they did it. But he leaves on his way with everything that was his inheritance. So the Bible says he divided unto them the portions of his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and he took his journey into a far country. And there he wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and he joined himself to a citizen of the country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's? have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will rise and go to my father's house, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he rose, and he came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and he had compassion. And he ran, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead. Now the son said, dad, I wish you were dead, but the person who winds up dying in the story was the son. He didn't die a physical death, but the father felt as though he wasn't just saying he wished I was dead, but when he left, he was now dead to me. I never thought I would see him again. My son that was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and he drew nigh to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, thy brother is come. And thy father hath killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry. Everybody say angry. Angry. All right, I know you are still out there. He was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at thy commandments. And yet thou never gavest me a kid. Thou never gave gave me a baby goat 
that I may make merry, have a party with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf, the best that we have. You've never even given me a baby goat and you're giving him the best that we have? And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. Remember in the beginning of the story, they had already divided to both of them. All I've got is yours. It was meat that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now, you may have heard people preach on this, and you may even read this, and we're really tempted as we read this to read and say, man, this is a story about a good son and a bad son, right? That's We see that because we see this bad son that ran off and did all of these horrible things, and this other son that stayed home. And we might see it as a good son and a bad son, but I want to tell you that this story is about Two bad sons and one really good daddy. Amen? And then the Lord showed me a fourth person in the story. The Lord showed me a fourth person that's in this story, and we're going to deal with that tonight as well. So as we dive into this scripture, we're going to bring all three of these parables together. All three of the stories, the part of one parable. We're going to bring them all together, and I'm going to show you how they all collide And we're going to discuss the four men that we see in the story of the prodigal son. So the first man that I want you to see is the rebellious man. The rebellious man. Now, when we're in verse 1, and we're looking at verse 1, we see, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and the sinners. I want you to know that the rebellious man, this younger son that left out, is a picture describing the publicans and the sinners, also described by the lost sheep. You see, because they were lost and away from the fold. Did you catch that? They were lost and away from the fold. So you have the publicans and the sinners. They are lost and away from God. They have nothing to do with religion. They don't, they don't even have a form of religion. And then this son, he goes away. The sheep goes away. That's a picture of this rebellious man. Those are all three a picture of the same group of people. It's all a picture of the publicans and the sinners. And we see... In verse 13, it says, Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, and he took his journey into a far country, and there he wasted his substance with riotous living. So we see some characteristics of the rebellious man. We see some characteristics of this rebellious person, this person that is away from the fold, this lost person. And I want to share one with you. The first one that I find is we see that he's a wanderer. He's a wanderer. You know, they call him the wanderer. He's wandering around. Yeah, this man, he was, he was a wanderer. The Bible says that he left 
home. It says that he went into a far country because we've already established he had a good daddy and he knew that he couldn't act the way he wanted to act around his good daddy. Right. He had. To, and that's what happens in the church today, by the way, when folks come to church and they they know that they are acting in a way that is not pleasing to God. What do they do? They don't say bye. Well, I'm going to stay at home today. What happens? They just disappear. They're wondering because you see, there is a void. I believe this with all my heart. There is a void inside every person that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. There, you see, he's going out and he's a wonder and he's going into all these different places and he's looking for something. He's looking for joy. And he's looking for peace. How many of you have been guilty of this? Don't wave at me. No, but I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. But we've all been guilty of that, right? That we've wandered looking for peace over here, looking for love over here in all the wrong places, right? We've all wandered and looked for something that we thought was going to bring us joy, that was going to fill that void that inside of us. But there was nothing in this world that could bring that joy. Outside of Jesus, we're all empty. We're all empty. The only, well, I'm not going to say the only thing we're full of, but we all know. But, but we, we are, we are spiritually empty without Christ. And so this rebellious man, he's wandering to and fro, looking for something to fill the emptiness. And whatever it is that he has the opportunity to pursue, he will pursue it with all he has because he thinks that it's going to give him something, some form of joy that will fill that void. We see it in our society today so much. I mean, drugs are rampant. It's easier to find someone who has experimented with drugs than it is to find someone who never has. It's easier to find someone who has been drunk on alcohol than to find somebody who said, I've never touched the stuff. You just, you don't see that. Anymore, Because our society and our culture has been lying to our to us and our children, telling them that these things will fulfill you, even though they they know they won't. And so our children go out and they chase a high because that one time they got it. They thought that it filled the void. Right. They thought that it filled the void. And then the high goes away and they got to fill it again. So they continue to chase this high. We see it with our adults chasing money. You get a big check. Get a big check. Let's say $5,000. That's a big check to me. Okay. You get a big check. It goes into the bank. Your $5,000 is there. And then you find something to spend it on and it ain't there no more. What do you do? You chase another $5,000 check because there was some form of peace. There was some form of comfort that was brought to you that you felt like you received because you had some money in the bank. And so you continue. And even if you save it, you know, even if you save it, you'll look at that $5,000 check and it can be sitting there and it can just, you don't have to touch it. And then you go, 
I think I need to make that $6,000. Suddenly, you're not comfortable with only having five. Then you're not comfortable with only having six. The next thing you know, you're not comfortable with only having 30. I don't know. I ain't never had 30. But, <laughs> but you chasing after anything, wandering around looking for something that would fill that void. But then when the rebellious person sees that nothing will fill that void, they're wondering turns into be wickedness. Their wondering turns into wickedness. The Bible says that he went to a far country and he wasted his substance. He wasted his inheritance by tithes and offerings. <laughs> no. <laughs> he wasted his inheritance on paying the bills and feeding the children and making sure the wife drove a nice car. No. Wasted his substance with riotous living, with wicked living. It's a good thing his daddy wasn't around. He'd have tore his rear end up. You done took your inheritance, ran off, and you're wasting it on that garbage? But you see the wondering and looking for something to fill the void. And the more you wonder, the more you realize that this void is only being filled temporarily because the Bible says that there is joy in sin for a season. We can all experience the pleasures of sin, but it's always temporary. And so he's wondering and he's looking and he's going out and trying to feel this emptiness that's inside of him. And he's fooling himself, thinking that maybe it's with this, maybe it's with women, maybe it's with money, maybe it's with whatever. And he's lying to himself. And he realizes, you know what? There's not a whole lot good to this life. So I'll just be wicked. And we all know somebody. We all know somebody that has done, got so fed up with how hard life gets. Life is hard. Amen. I don't care if you're blood washed and born again or if you're lost as a ball in high weeds. Life is hard. The Bible says that it rains on the just and the unjust. Every man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Life is hard. But so many people trying to fill that void and then going through a life that they've had to struggle and they've had to claw and they've had to fight and they've never found what they were looking for. Eventually they get sick and tired of looking and they go, you know what? I'm just going do my own thing I'm just going to do my thing and most of the time our thing turns out to be wicked because we live in a cursed world we live in a world where wickedness is constantly flaunted in front of us and so most of the time our own thing is wicked so that's the rebellious man Number two, we see the religious man. The second group of people that Jesus is addressing in this, with this story is the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and the scribes were the religious crowd. These were the church leaders of that day. These were the ones that were making all the rules in the churches and they were controlling everything. 
And they had a form of godliness, but they denied his power. The religious man, the Pharisees and the sinners, is also represented in the story of the prodigal son by the older brother. Because we've looked at the younger brother and the sheep, and they were lost away from the fold, the publicans and sinners. But now we have the older brother and the silver lost in the house. Lost and in the house. Religion never saved nobody. Like we, we, we like those hymns. Give me that old time religion. You know, listen, if your old time religion hadn't got you in an old time relationship with Jesus Christ, then your old time religion is garbage. Amen. Because let me tell you something, this religious person, one of the characteristics of him is anger. The first characteristic we see of the religious person is anger. You see, if your religion is absent of a relationship, all it will bring is rage. We see that. We say, oh, he ain't doing it the way I do it, bless God. More people falling out with each other because they ain't doing it the way you would do it. Right? We think that whenever we stand on something like religion, because religion all in all is not bad of itself. It's only bad when it's absent of the relationship. There ain't nothing, there ain't nothing wrong with religion. There ain't nothing wrong with standing on some doctrine. Amen? There ain't nothing wrong with, with coming together and gathering with God's people. But when you take your relationship out and all you have is religion, then you become a dictator. You want to, you know, tell everybody else how they're supposed to live their life. What did this guy say? The Bible says that he came up and he was angry when he found out that his little brother came home. He wasn't even happy to see his little brother. He wasn't even glad. Now, listen, you got to understand that this is a picture of someone getting saved. He couldn't even celebrate the salvation of his own brother. And if all you have is religion and you don't have any relationship, somebody that is tore up from the floor up in sin and all the things that the world has tossed at them can come to this altar and give their life to Christ. And when they do, you're just like, huh? But when you know Jesus and you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you see that person that, that the whole world, like everything that Satan and the world has thrown at them and they bring that burden and they lay it down at the altar and they stand up snot slinging, squalling and everything else. And brother Malcolm gets up and says, Hey, somebody give me glory. Help me give me God glory that so and so has given their life to the Lord. And we can all shout and we can celebrate. Why? Because we know what that relationship is like. We know what that change is like. I don't know about you, but I remember what it was like to be a lost person. I remember my life before Jesus. So when you've got that relationship, then you can celebrate. 
But when you don't, you just angry. Not only was he angry, but I'll, oh, I done forgot it. It's another A, I promise. But he was arrogant. He was arrogant. Look what he said. He said, you mean to tell me that this son of yours came home and you killed for him the fatted calf and you've never even given me a baby goat to have a party with my buddies? You see, that reveals something about this older brother to us. That reveals to us that he didn't think that his little brother deserved the fatted calf. So in essence, that means he thought he did. I've been good. I've stayed with you. Haven't I done everything you've asked? And then he tells us what the little brother actually spent the money on. He says he spent all his money on prostitutes. He said, I've been good. And you've never even given me a baby goat. And he's acting a fool and you're giving him the fatted calf. See, his arrogance, he looked at this boy. He said, he don't deserve it. And then thought to himself, I should have had the fatted calf. That's religion. Remember the story? Remember the story that Jesus tells about the, uh, he tells the story about the sinner that was praying and the publican that was praying and they're both there at the altar and the publican, he gets distracted by the sinner who's praying because he says, God forgive a wretched sinner like me. Hey, I forgot there was a balcony. <laughs> Sorry guys. <laughs> I just been preaching to these folks, but been a long time since I've been here. I'm sorry. The publican, he gets distracted by, by the sinner who's praying. And he's he's praying and he says, God forgive. Y'all quit over there. Forgive. Forgive me, somebody that's such a wretched sinner as I am. Forgive me for being so low down and sorry. And then what does the publican say? God, thank you that I'm not like him. Arrogance. Arrogance. So we see the rebellious man lost. The religious man Lost. You can be full of religion, but until you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you ain't His. Number three. Number three, we see the righteous man. The righteous man. Now, we've already established that there were two bad sons and one good daddy. And I know, as we read this story, we understand that this daddy is a type picture of God the Father. The Bible says that he rose and he came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him 
and had compassion, and he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. I don't know about you, but that takes a better man than me. I'll tell you, if one of my boys, I got a boy getting married Sunday, and if he was coming to me and he said, Dad, I want my inheritance. Well, I'd probably just give him all $3 of it and let him go. But, <laughs> Dad, I, I want my inheritance. I'm better off without you. I wish you were just go ahead and die already. I don't know how, I, how well I would receive him coming back. Amen? You say, you feel that way about your son? If he wants me dead, I mean, you know, the point that I'm trying to make is this, is that there's this righteous father standing there with his youngest son and he asks him for his inheritance and he gives it to him and he watches him walk away carrying all his stuff. I can't get out of the box, but he, he walks away carrying all of his stuff. Everything that he owned, he took with him. And I just can't help but to think that this righteous man, that this daddy watched his son walk away in the same hill that he watched his head disappear over. He looked back at it every day to see that head come back. I just wonder if maybe before he got out and started his work day, maybe he's having a cup of coffee and sitting there getting ready if he doesn't look out the window and just stare at that hill and see if his son's coming home. I wonder if maybe right before he went to bed, you know, he just thought, maybe, just maybe, he'll be coming over that hill and I can see the light off of his torch as he comes back to me. Maybe. Maybe. I wonder if maybe he wasn't out and working with all of those sheep and the lambs that he had and the cattle, the sun beaming down on him, sweat running off his brow. He reaches into his pocket, pulls out his handkerchief, and then he wipes his sweat and he looks at that hill and he goes, is that, that looks just like, because the righteous man was seeking The Bible says that he was afar off. You know how you see something that's afar off, Brother Travis? When you're looking for it. You see, the righteous man was seeking. I don't know about you, but I wasn't looking for God when he found me. I wasn't. I was chasing anything else that might give me some form of joy, but I was not chasing God. I wasn't looking for him. But I'm glad that regardless of whether I was looking for him, whether I was expecting him, whether I was wanting him, that praise God, he was looking for me. I used to joke and say, I just kind of got saved by accident. Because my oldest brother invited me to church and he tricked me into going by saying, Hey, if you come and go to church with me, then when we get out of church, I'll pay for you to play a round of golf. I ain't never played golf before in my life. And I was like, well, that sounds fun. I'd 
Joe, go give it a try. And I went and I saw a choir that had the joy of the Lord on their face. I heard the preacher for the very first time preach a gospel message and he actually sounded like he believed what he was saying. Anybody ever been to the opposite church of that? You know what I'm talking about. Like this guy, he gets up and he preaches, but you're like, do you even believe it? You can't convince me. But between the joy on their face and the faith of this man preaching, the Holy Spirit pricked my heart, showed me that I was lost and that I was on my way to hell. And I said, God, if you'll save me, if you'll forgive me, I'm yours. Whatever you want. It wasn't that I was looking for him. But the righteous father was looking for me. Amen. Not only is the righteous man is he seeking, but he's sympathetic. He's sympathetic. The Bible says that we have a high priest. Cause Jesus our high priest. And it says that he is, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but he is moved by our infirmities. He is sympathetic to our sin, sympathetic to our sin nature. He's sympathetic to our broken hearts and our brokenness in general. This father, the Bible says that the son was a great way off and he ran to him. He ran to his son having compassion and he fell on his neck. That means he gave him a big hug and he kissed him. I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know if you've I know it's Wednesday night Bible study, and this is kind of the creme de la creme, right? Like, y'all are supposed to be the ones that got it all together. Y'all, you know, I'm here to learn more. But I hope you also understand that that thing that you struggle with, that thing that you say, God, I've been saved a long time now. Why am I still tempted by this? God, I, I, I've brought this to the altar and tried to leave it there and tried to leave it there and tried to leave it there. I want you to know that God is sympathetic towards you. Because Satan would have you to believe that God just wants to beat you up for that stuff. I'm not excusing it. Don't get my words twisted tonight. I'm not excusing any type of sinful action. But I am saying that God understands you. The most wonderful thing about salvation is that God knew what he was getting when he got you. And you ought to be comforted in, in the fact that he knows the, end, the beginning from the end. Because if he knows your beginning from your end, then he knows everything in between. So you can be comforted in the fact that he's sympathetic towards your sin. 
But he also gives you the strength and the power to fight it. As a matter of fact, he's already told you that within your own power, you will never be able to fight it. But he made us a great, great promise. And that is greater is he that's within me than he's in this world. There's not a person in this room that will ever be perfect. Not one. Don't let nobody try to convince you of that sinless perfection doctrine nonsense because it's not going to happen. But you can strive. You can absolutely strive for righteousness. Strive for holiness. And those things please God. Because you do those things by faith. And it's your faith that pleases God. But I want you to know this. The righteousness that God sees when he looks at you is the robe of righteousness that Jesus Christ put on you the day that you got saved and he washed you with his blood. Amen. He took your nasty, black, pitiful sin and he dipped it in his precious red blood and you came out on the other side white as snow. The temptations and the struggles of this life will still be there. But he's sympathetic. He doesn't excuse your actions, but he can be touched by your infirmities. He's sympathetic. And I want to say this before I go on to the last one. God says to be ye holy for I am holy. God has a desire for his children to strive to be like him. Amen. And so if we know that this righteous father is a seeker of the lost, that tells me that I should be a seeker of the lost. Right? You see, there's a difference in a seeker and a watcher. Because if I'm seeking, then when I see it, I attempt to do something about it. But if I'm a watcher, I can just go, man, poor pitiful him. And go the other way. Just because you feel sorry for somebody doesn't mean you're seeking. Just because you recognize that somebody is a sinner doesn't mean that you're seeking. It means you're inspecting. It means you're watching, you're looking. But you're not seeking until you actively show some sympathy. You know the best way that the church can show sympathy? It's not by paying somebody's power bill. It's not by, you know, helping somebody with whatever issue it is that they have. The best way that you can show sympathy towards a sinner is to share Jesus with them. We anointed a girl with oil at our church this week. We've got a girl. Her name is Stephanie. Please pray for her. She has colon cancer. 
She is one of the sweetest people that you'll ever meet. 30 years old. She's got, um, she's got three children. She has a daughter that is 15, a son that is, um, a seventh-ish grade, and then she has a, another little boy who is somewhere between four and six. I should know, but I don't. But we just found out that she has colon cancer. And when we found out the results last Thursday, I called her because immediately I felt impressed that we needed to pray over her as a church, and I wanted to anoint her with oil. And so I called her, and I didn't want to embarrass her, you know, because it's got to be a willing thing for you to anoint somebody with oil. You know, it's not like you can be like, hey, come on, and I'm going to just anoint you this week. And we got ready, and I told him, I said, guys, I said, you've probably seen this done before, and you may have been in a part of a service, and I have too, and I've done it this way, where you just take the bottle of the oil, and you put a little bit on the tip of your finger, and you touch them on the forehead, and everybody prays. I said, we're not doing that. I said, that is about the dinkiest thing. I Poor excuse for anointing somebody with oil. And we called the elders of the church up, Several people that were with us on our launch team that helped us start the church, our worship pastor, and I began to pour oil into their hands. Brother Larry, I'm talking about I poured oil in their hands. My wife got down at her feet, took her socks and shoes off. And they held hand on this side and they anointed her hands. And then on this side, and my wife was anointing her feet and I got up behind her and I poured oil into my hands and I anointed her neck and her shoulders and we began to pray. And the Holy Spirit moved, y'all, I'm telling you. There's nothing in the oil that made the Holy Spirit move. It's not because we use more oil than your typical Baptist. (laughs) But it was all of us coming together in faith, believing God for a miracle, and we're specifically praying for a miracle in this situation. And we're praying over this girl, and the Holy Spirit just moves and All of a sudden, the church like is all surrounding us and we're all praying out loud. And I told them, I said, look, when we begin to pray, you'll be tempted to bow your head and listen. I said, but don't you dare because she deserves better than that. Amen. I said, when you bow your head to pray, you pray because she deserves it. She's our family. We love her and we all prayed over. And I was telling them. I said, I know what's going to happen. Somebody's going to say, hey, would you come and anoint one of my friends with oil? Or would you come and anoint my mom with oil or something? And I said, here's what I'll do. Before I ever come to your house with a bottle of oil, I'm going to come with my Bible. Because there ain't no power in that oil. But there's power in that Bible. And we didn't do it as a show. We did it as an act of faith. I believe it's biblical. The Bible says in the book of James, if you've got those that are sick among you, call your bre- all the elders together and you anoint them with oil and pray. And then the Bible tells us that it's the faith that heals, not the oil. But anyway, the best thing that you can do for a lost person is not anoint them with oil or pay their power bill or whatever it is that they're going through, but it's that you share Jesus with them. Number four, I want to show you the fourth one. Because I always looked at this 
And I thought, okay, well, there's a good son and a bad son. And then I saw, no, it's two bad sons and one good daddy. And then I get to read and I'm like, hey, there's a fourth person in this scripture. The servant. The servant. So we see the reverent man. Verse 22 says, But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came, he drew nigh to the house. And he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants. And he asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. The reverent man. The reverent man. I think this is really important that we see this fourth person. Because I don't know about you, but I like to read the Bible and find myself in it somewhere. I like to read read that, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, which one of these people represents me at this stage in my life or during this time that what I'm going through? Because even though this was written to someone else at this time, it's still applicable to all of us, correct? So I'm looking, you know, and going, okay, I see the rebellious, and that's not me. And... I see the religious and Lord, but help that not to be me. Certainly, God, I'm, I'm not the righteous. I don't have the power to save. I don't have the power to. And then I see this servant, the reverent one. There it is. There we are. The servant, the one that when God says, welcome them in, we welcome them in. The one that when God says, get them a robe, we get them a robe. Now, you got to understand that this robe was an invitation back into the family. He gives them the robe. He gives them the ring. The boy had done wore out his shoes from running all around these different and God's given some shoes. Now look, there's a lot of ways that we can clothe people, and I think we ought to. This isn't a picture, Brother Travis, as much as I'd like for it to be, it's not a picture of the homeless shelter. This is a picture of how we treat the sinners that God brings back into the fold. Never allow yourself, never allow yourself to start looking for Christians or even lost people that look like you. Don't get to the point to where you're looking for somebody that looks like they fit. Lost people don't look like they fit. I'll never forget. 
Miss Diane's here. She's, we've been buddies for a long, long time. Her son Stephen and I were best friends for a long time. I remember the very first time I ever saw him. We were having choir practice down in the little building. Brother Bob up there leading the choir. All we knew as a choir, we did like Jalen, he's got y'all separated into like sopranos and altos and tenors and basses and all this stuff. And everybody's harmonizing. We knew, sing loud. That's all we knew. And you can sing louder when you bend your back. That's, that's what we knew. And we're up there in choir practice and we're, I never shall forget the day. I mean, and we're just getting after it. And I look down and I see Stephen. Stephen had been saved about six minutes. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't long at all. And I look down, he's got these big, huge earrings in. He's got tattoos. He doesn't fit the mold. I'm looking down there and we're in, I mean, Literally preaching to the choir. Like, I'm looking down there and I see him in his seat. And immediately the Lord says, you need to talk to him. You need to talk to him. I didn't even know he was Miss Diane's son. I'd never met him. And I went down. And I said, hey man, I'm Scott. He said, I'm Stephen. I'm Diane's son. I said, how long have you been coming to the temple? He said, man, I, I got saved you know, a couple Sundays ago and then I'm back today or however the conversation went. And we became buddies. We began to work together and all kinds of stuff. And then we kind of fell out of touch with one another when I went off to Bible college. The Lord called me to preach not long after that and I went out to victory and I was gone for a few years. But the point is, never assume that God is going to save people that fit the mold. Ne never assume that because someone does fit the mold, that they're already saved. The reverent man. The reverent man one's obedient. I'll give you these last two. We'll be done. He's obedient. Regardless of the look or the status of the person in the pew. Just be obedient. You may walk up to somebody that you think is lost and you find out that they're saved. You may walk up to somebody that you think is saved and you find out that they're lost. Regardless, you just be obedient because it's our job as the servants to welcome them in to the family. Amen? Amen. So a characteristic of the reverent man is that he's obedient, but not only that he's obedient, but that he honors. Let me tell you one of the greatest characteristics of Dr. Larry Brown, which was my mentor and outside of Malcolm Carter, Brother Travis's mentor, Brother Malcolm's mentor. This man invested into us so much. And you could not go into a room and have a conversation with him when you did not feel like you were the most important person in the room. 
He just was that way. He had, if, if out of all of the great characteristics that Dr. Brown had, I've told Travis this before, out of all the characteristics that he had, if you could say, what's one that you would like to have? It wouldn't be his preaching. He's far better preacher than I ever thought about being. I mean, phenomenal. But that wouldn't be what I asked for. What about his leadership qualities? I'm telling you, he could take two people and just lead them into battle against an army. I mean, and you just knew walking into the battle, you was fixing to win. You just followed this man. But that wouldn't be what I asked for. If I could have any of his qualities, it would be to be able to show honor to any and everybody, regardless of who they were. How do you do that? One, you got to be real. You can't fake honor. You can't. You can't fake loving somebody. If you're having trouble loving somebody, ask the Lord to help you love them. Right? You can't, but you, you can't fake loving people. I've seen Dr. Brown come up in a service and people are coming forward for salvation. I've seen him go from somebody who looks like they fit, like they're supposed to be there, suit, tie, whole night. He goes over and he prays with them and he just loves on them and then turn right around and there be a homeless man, dirty and smelly and everything else, and he just hug him. That's what a reverent man looks like. Obedient, and he honors those, and you can't fake it. Look, when I'm talking about, I'm, I'm not saying give them some sort of, you know, platform, but you can respect, you can love, and you can make sure that without a doubt that you're not looking down your nose at anybody. You know the number one leading cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Everybody I know that has once been in church that says they don't go to church no more says, well, it's the people. I got hurt at this church, got hurt over there, got hurt at this. It ought not be so. But we're all broken people. We're all messed up. So how do we fix it? Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. Amen. Let's honor one another.